Sometimes it's easy in life to uh, figure things out without the proverbial owner's manual. It's easy to try to repair things or operate things on trial and error. What we have here in Exodus 31 is an owner's manual. And I hope that we'll hear it and understand its guidance for us today, especially as it shows us Christ. Exodus chapter 31, the word of the Lord says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones and setting, and carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ahiliab, the son of Ahisamech of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table, its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the brazen, or the basin on which it stands, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments of Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for service as priest, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you're to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generation as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. He gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children, you could be dismissed to children's church. There is here in Exodus 31 a sort of owner's manual. Quite simply, God summarizes this section, gets to the end of this law giving, gets to the end of this instruction about building the tabernacle in the wilderness, and quite simply he gets to the end and he says this, now work according to my promise and rest according to my promise. And we break the chapter down. Maybe you already saw it. The chapter breaks down with, Working and resting. The instruction of the wilderness tabernacle here is completed. 
We found all the instruction from chapter 25 through 30. Worshippers of God can be assured that what they will go to at the center of their camp is in fact a reflection of what God showed Moses in heaven. When Moses comes to inspect the tabernacle in chapter 39, when finally the work being described here is done, Moses can say, just as the Lord had commanded. He would see a tabernacle completed that reflected the one he had been shown in heaven. The question is, how does it get from blueprint to reality? And the answer to that is skilled craftsmanship. That's, that's the reality. How does the tabernacle get from, here's a picture, to, aha, there's the tabernacle. Skilled craftsmanship is the answer. Here in chapter 31, the first 11 verses, God insists that gifted workers be assigned to the construction. Their giftedness is attributed to the filling with God's spirit. The result is the completed tabernacle is an accurate imprint of the heavenly temple. So looking at Exodus 31, in your hands, you see this break out in two parts, work and rest. In work and in rest, there is first an illustrative benefit. The stewardship of the law and its work and the rest we have in the completed work of Christ. There's also a theological lesson for God's people. God has provided us with both work and rest before the fall. We need to consider the stewardship of both this morning. Stewardship of good work and stewardship of good rest. Would you take a moment of honest inventory... You're all at various places in life with a variety of responsibilities, a variety of expectations. But would you honestly say, Lord, how good am I at work? And how good am I at rest? I would contend that they are not mutually exclusive. If, in fact, this is a good manual from our maker, I'm going to contend that the quality of stewarding work is linked to the quality with which we steward rest. So we'll come to this chapter and we'll just break it down into two parts. God provides for work. God provides for rest. Let's look at the first one in the first 11 verses. God provides for work. It's extraordinary, really, that the names of these two artists are remembered. There's, there's no real significant reason. Like the midwives back in Exodus chapter 1, you remember the ones who were told by Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew uh, boys? And they didn't. Their, work, their names are recorded in Scripture. And likewise, we have these two artists whose names are preserved. Bezalel and Ohiliab. God says, I have called them by name. This means specifically that God has drafted them for a particular purpose. These two guys have been drafted by God for a very clear reason. And then God says this, I have filled them with the Spirit of God. 
all the skill and strength and excellence to do God's bidding is directly attributed to being filled with the Spirit of God. The concept of being filled with the Spirit of God is often misunderstood. Some have assumed that being filled with the Spirit of God represents some sort of powerful, emotional, almost out-of-body experience. For example, just do this. Picture the room in which the Apostle Paul is writing the letter to the Galatian church. See him seated at a small writing station, laying words to parchment. And what do you see? Do you see some sort of lightning-filled room where Paul's eyes are rolled back in his head and his hand is operating totally independent of his choices? That may be what you think of when you say, see, these craftsmen will be filled with my spirit. They just walk around all day doing amazing things, and at the end of the day, they step back and go, how did that happen? That, That is sometimes what we think of in our sort of imagination that's mystical about being filled with the spirit. Or do you, in fact, see Paul sitting at a small desk and writing out words and writing and then thinking, hmm, the Galatians, hmm, yes, they need to know, hmm, the Galatians. I wonder if you have a category for God working directly through people's independent personalities. That's what's happening here. Skilled craftsmen. Contractors, builders, painters, seamstress, who are filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means to have from God the ability to do or say exactly what God wants done or said. That's the definition. To be filled with the Spirit means to be given from God the ability to do or say exactly what God wants done or said. Listen to Micah chapter 3. The Bible says he was filled with the Spirit to declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. In other words, God fills his prophet with his Spirit so that his prophet can go say correctly what was supposed to be said. When the angel assures Zechariah that his son, John, would be filled with the Spirit, we read in Luke 1.15 that this meant he would be empowered to make ready, to accurately proclaim the Messiah was coming. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, we're told that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. When we otherwise couldn't, being filled with the Spirit equips us to do the thing we couldn't do. So, these two men are equipped by God's Spirit to do exactly what God wanted them to do. And so, to produce in their craftsmanship exactly what God had instructed, as though God did it himself. He says, I have filled them with my spirit, and then he adds this, I've given to all able men ability. So it's important for you to know that these two guys don't go about doing all the work. It seems like maybe they serve as some sort of foreman for the work, because here... God says, I've given all the people. Later in Exodus, we're going to find out that's men and women. I've given to all these people certain skills to do the tasks I've instructed them to do. The Hebrew literally sounds like this. Listen close. 
In the mind of all who have wise minds, I have put wisdom so that they may make everything I have commanded. In the mind of all who have wise minds, I've put wisdom. Is that cause or effect? I think yes. The emphasis is not that they experience some sort of out of body, extraordinary, involuntary ability, but what we're supposed to understand about God working in them with the power of His Spirit is that these people operated in tune with God's instruction. They operated in tune with God's instruction, not out of it, but totally in tune with God's instruction. In verse 7 through 11 in our text, these verses say that all of the skilled craftsmen would tend to all of the things that had been described. They are to make them just as had been commanded in the previous six chapters. People with ability, filled with the Spirit, giving them ability to do what God said to do. I wonder how that applies to our working. I I can't take time to go through and list all the different trades and crafts and projects that you have tended to, even in the last week. They're numerous. And there's a wide variety of skill sets required to do all of them. And I want to say about your working, I want to say a word of guidance for the way the gospel will shape our working. But I think only the gospel will shape our working this way. Only the good news of Jesus Christ shapes us to work the way he's planned for us to work. Uh, What I mean by that is that in the good news of Jesus Christ, we understand ourselves to be recipients of every good and perfect gift. So it guards us from using the gift as though it's something to be adored. So I wonder, if you would just think, without saying out loud, what is something you're really, really good at? You're really, really good at. I have a couple of things, just a handful of things I think I can do pretty well. Um, Preaching may or may not be one of them. I don't know. The jury's still out. There are some things you think you can do really, really well. And I wonder how those things provoke you internally. I wonder if that thing you can do really really well, you think... I'm a pretty big deal. I'm really, really good at this. I've worked hard at it, applied myself, honed my craft, and now I'm probably one of the top four or five people in the state at that thing. Good for me. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus Christ will protect us from that, from taking the good gift that is from God, which is your skill and ability to work hard at getting better at something, And not use it as something to adore, but rather use it as a gift to adore the gift giver. Romans 1.21. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him as the gift giver. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming themselves to be wise, they actually acted like fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They looked at what they could do and worshipped it instead of the God who had given what they could do to them. 
And it's not just the physical blessings either. The Bible says that of all the blessings of life that had been given to Israel, the table that God had prepared before them became a stumbling block. God had set out a banquet in front of Israel. And what did Israel do with the banquet? said, look at us. We now have the best banquet in all the land. And that's a tragic account of how sometimes we use the very gifts we've been given to distract our thankfulness from God and rejoice in the gift instead of the gift giver. So I wondered today if the work you were able to do this past week is something that you get to the end of the week and say, thank you that I was even able to do that. Thank you for thumbs. Thank you for memory. Thank you for eyesight. The ability to read. Thank you for verbal skills to communicate with my coworkers. I wonder if you finish hard work and say, that work was from God. My ability to accomplish it was because his spirit is working through me. And the gospel of Jesus Christ protects us from that. But I want to say just quickly one other area that I do think the gospel protects us from. One of the things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it's liberating. There is an undeniable anthem of grace in the gospel. And sometimes that very anthem of grace excuses us from faithfulness, at least in our own fallen mind. Sometimes we think, but God's grace to me requires that I not do anything. So... I'm going to quit working altogether. I'm going to be passive or lazy or indifferent because, after all, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, isn't it? And then we just punch out. The gospel of Jesus Christ guards us from that. The gospel of Jesus Christ as it relates to Exodus guards us from that antinomianism. I won't work at doing what pleases God. I won't, I won't work at bearing false witness. I won't, I won't work at not stealing. I won't work at not coveting. Well, I have the gospel. And so there's this anti-law, like what God wants from us doesn't matter because after all, the gospel of Jesus Christ is of grace. So we're guarded from that misunderstanding. It is required of spirit-filled stewardship that we be faithful, 1 Corinthians 4.2. Now, before I move away from this section about working, because I think to this point, everything I've said relates to the manual labor. I think it relates to the skill of hand and ability and comprehensions. Before I move away from it, let me talk a little bit about our evangelistic work. I just want to, this is kind of an excursus from the point, but it is something I want you to see because it blessed me as I saw it this week. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that we are being built from before the foundation of the world into a temple. We are, spiritual temple. So we've been talking a lot about the one in heaven, the one in the wilderness, the one in Jerusalem. We've been talking, the one in Eden. We've been talking a lot about seeing the continuity of temple reality. And I know two weeks ago I commented that we are a spiritual temple. That's in Ephesians 2. We are being built together like, like bricks built intertwined with each other, mortared together as a spiritual temple 
before the Lord. That's happening. That temple that we are being built as is a temple which is already a reality in heaven. From before the foundation of the world, also Ephesians 1. Temple exists in heaven, spiritual temple, people exist in heaven before the foundation of the world. That temple is being built now. And Matthew 16, Jay taught Sunday school this morning, and he read from Matthew 16. And I thought, this is really helpful because I don't have time to read this whole section of Matthew 16. But he read it, so if you were in Sunday school, you saw that one of the things said is in Matthew 16, 19, where Jesus says, the things that you bind as a reality in heaven will be mirrored in church. And vice versa. The things you bind as a reality in church. In other words, the way God builds a church is the way he has built that church in heaven. So now when it comes to your skill and evangelism, your abilities, your craftsmanship in articulating the good news. How many of you feel like you're really, really good at making a watertight case for Jesus Christ. I feel like you're, I've got it. I took, I took several classes on that in Bible college and seminary. I have a diploma to show that I can convince anyone they need Jesus. <laughs> you think you're really, really good at that. Probably around the room, you think, I don't think I am very good at that. So I wonder if you think about the fact that before the foundation of the world, there was a people built that are currently being built and whatever is true on earth is because it's true in heaven and you are spirit-filled craftsmen to do that work. I hope that reality does two things. If you track with what I'm saying, I hope it does two things. I hope first of all you say, if it's true that being filled with the Spirit means being given the power by God to do or say what God says I should do or say, then I can evangelize. I also hope, as we just read a moment ago, I have given to all able people ability. I also hope that you do see some personal responsibility to think carefully about how you share Christ with other people. I hope both of those are true. I hope you feel a great sense of I'm filled with the Spirit to do and say what he says I should do and say. And if building his church is one of the things he's doing through me, I can do that. And I hope you also understand that it is required of a steward to be faithful. You can't do it recklessly or indifferently. But rather as you're led by his Spirit. So, work is provided for us by God. Work is a gift that was given to us before the fall. You have certain work that you enjoy. Maybe there's certain parts of that work you don't enjoy. You have some work that clearly is a result of the fall. This is tumultuous labor. This is not, this is not garden work. There's some work that's that way. Work is a gift from God. I hope you'll see in this sort of owner's manual the goodness of work. But maybe one of the reasons you don't see the goodness of work is because you don't see the goodness of rest. This is the one I think is more relevant to a Western culture. As I speak to Americans, largely conditioned by the culture in which we've been raised, I don't have to tell you to go work hard. Uh, Capitalism, in part, has ingrained in all of us a compulsion to work harder than we probably should. And so we get the work part right. Because, uh, I'm not going to get into the nature of why we want to work so hard, but um, I was about to say because, but 
There's only time to address so many things in the morning. But I think part of the reason that we don't work in a healthy way is because we don't even understand, don't even comprehend rest. So you know from the second portion of this chapter that God commands six days of labor and one day of rest. Maybe in the room you go, well, we're doing better than that. Most of us are five days of work and two days of rest. And I'm going to contend with great confidence that you are not, in fact, resting at all on those two days. I'm going to contend that we have eradicated the very concept of Sabbath from our Christian stewardship because we've debated Sabbath days rather than Sabbath principle. So I'm not going to debate whether we should be here on Sunday or should have come yesterday. Maybe we missed it and the building was empty and we all disobeyed. That's not the point of this section, but rather the principle of Sabbath as a sign. So we struggle with a healthy application of working whenever we struggle with a healthy application of resting. I was talking with a nurse once in our church, and we were talking about intermittent fasting. Maybe some of you do this. Um, I have an alarm that goes off in my phone that tells me, even if I wanted to eat, the door is shut. I can't eat anymore after that time. And then that alarm goes off in the morning. It's like, okay, remember how hungry you were? Now my phone tells me it's okay to eat again. It's a very powerful device. (laughs) And so I have this intermittent fasting. And she was talking to me about, um, about her application of fasting was that she had done some research and found that if she totally fasted for 24 hours, if she had an absolute fast of any food for 24 hours, that she could eat as she wished the rest of the week and be healthy and have control of her diet. And I thought that was an interesting principle because if she conditioned herself with such an extreme application of resting from eating, that the rest of the week, all of her choices would be shaped by that one day's discipline. That's what I want to say to you about one day of Sabbath. I think if you truly steward a restful moment, it will better equip you for all of the other working moments. So let's, let's study. Six days shall you work, but the seventh day is Sabbath of solemn rest. Verse 13, you shall keep my Sabbath for, here's the reason, not because it's a justification for laziness, but it's so much more, it is a sign The weekly Sabbath was the significance of a sign. Israel is unique. There's there's no record that I could find of any other people practicing a day of rest for religious consecration. There are cultures that rest well. They take days off. They vacation. They don't overwork. There are cultures that do that. But Israel, God's people, were unique in the sense that they observed this day as symbolism for something else. It is to be done as a sign that you are the people who are marked by God. To be called God's people and to ignore his rest. Listen listen close. To be called God's people and to ignore his rest is death. It's death. Here in Exodus 31... It is to go out and work on the day of rest. And literally in Numbers 15, 32, there is record of someone who did just that and worked on the Sabbath and were put to death for it. There was a death penalty. 
I want to say again, church, if you ignore God's provision of rest, you will surely die. That's meant to mean a lot of things. In John chapter 5, Jesus is charged with a death penalty for violating the Sabbath. It's serious. You know, there are a lot of countries that have come in and tried to Hellenize the Hebrew people. In the intertestamental period, there was an attempt to eradicate Jewishness from the world. Therefore, it became a mark of your identity to observe circumcision and Sabbath rest. And therefore, it became illegal to observe either one. So the period of time coming out of Old Testament, New Testament, middle, into Jesus' ministry, is a time where people thought it was a life and death matter to observe circumcision and Sabbath. And in this culture, Christ pressed back and said that there is room for works of mercy or necessity on the Sabbath day. He also pointed out against the orthodox position that the Sabbath was a gift for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you get that? Do you get that? That, that turns, Jesus turns the Sabbath concept on its head. When he says, listen, you don't have to observe this day so that the day can be distinct, making us as Israel therefore distinct. But rather, your loving father said, you should have a pattern that includes really thoughtful resting. So man is not made for the Sabbath, but rather God has made the Sabbath for man. And then anything I could say about thinking rightly about the Sabbath is punctuated in Jesus' statement that he is the Sabbath. He is the rest. So therefore, I can accurately say, if you deny God's rest, Jesus Christ, you will surely die. You will die. That is an eternal reality. The question for us right now is, should that have a weekly reminder? If you and I deny God's gift of rest, that is Christ. Rest from all of the work of righteousness to earn your way to heaven. If you and I reject the rest, we will die. That is a truth of the gospel. Should we have a pattern in our week that models that clear gospel reality? Look at verse 17. Your resting should be a sign that you are my people. To ignore his resting is to blaspheme about him that he provides for us rest. On the seventh day, he rested. The reason given for the Sabbath here is the same one we studied earlier in Exodus 20. God has accomplished what all of our work never could. And he rested. God did that. God created in six days and then rested. God send us, sends us the gift of completed work in Christ and rests. Christ 
No longer offering sacrifice, but now seated as a high priest whose work is done. And ours is rest in him. Listen to what Rabbi Savat says. The people of Yahweh are duty-bound once every seven days to assert by word and deed that God is the master of time. Uh, End quote. I think the plague that threatens our rest is a temptation to master time. I think the reason that we don't rest is because rest feels like a confession that we cannot dominate time, but rather time will dominate us. I can get more done in a 24-hour day than anyone else can. I'm greater than time. I think that is the temptation that keeps us from even humbling ourselves to think about rest. Resume quote. One day out of seven, they are to renounce dominion over his own time and recognize only God has dominion over time. To denounce dominion over time is thereby to renounce autonomy and recognize God's dominion over time and thus over ourselves. Keeping the Sabbath is acceptance of the sovereignty of God. That's why the Sabbath comes with a death penalty. Because when we don't rest, we assume it's because we have too much to accomplish. Because God hasn't already done it. And that's blasphemy. And so we're tempted not to rest. The key then to Christian applications of this principle, not day of the week, but the key to Christian applications of this principle by faith, we now have in Christ rest from our work in the sense that we're trying to earn our salvation and entered into spiritual rest and peace of heart that comes to those who know they are justified by God. Hebrews 4.10 says it this way. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God rested from his work. Resting. All right, kids. Kids, you ready? You ready? I have something I want to say to you. It's a a bit of a warning. Um, I think that kids, you're on a path to something that's going to be bad. I think, I think you're doing something now that might lead you to have a hard um, experience later, okay? Kids, when it's 3.30 in the afternoon and you've done everything you could think you would have wanted to do that day, maybe your siblings are gone doing something else, the house is quiet, there's no TV on, and you come to your parents And you say, just kids, just kids, parents don't help. You've played with all the toys, and you think you've done everything there is to enjoy, and it's only 3 o'clock. And you come to mom, and you say, Mom, I'm bored. And you think that that down moment is bad. And you start thinking that. 
And then you get older, and there's more and more stuff that will fill that so that you'll never be bored. And then you go off to college and adulthood and marriage and parenting, and trust me, you will never be bored again. (laughs) I have no recollection of boredom. So kids, I want you to be careful not to think bad about the times when there's nothing else to do. We could preach another sermon about idleness, and that's not my point. But I want you to protect yourself from the moments where you think your resting is a bad thing. And I want you to learn young to think of resting as a good thing from your maker, from the God who fashioned you and made you, molded you. I want you to think of downtime as a blessing, not just a curse. The reason I think it's important to talk to children that way is because I think we have generations of adults who have clearly been conditioned that boredom, that downtime, is perhaps evil. Work and rest are both important parts of discipleship. Let me give you an example. The church. The church. (laughs) Um, Something happened in our generation in probably the 80s and 90s called the church growth movement. So you, you know it hasn't always been popular to see church success as the biggest churches. That's, that's kind of a new thing. That's just really in our lifetime. That does not predate us. We might not know that. But the church growth movement. And one of the agendas in the church growth movement was you have to have a church that offers everything anyone might amuse themselves with, might delight in. You have to, it might be good things. I'm not, I'm not saying amuse in a bad way. Like, if, if you don't have a bowling night at your church, you should. There's somebody that likes bowling. And if you want them to come to your church, you've got to be the bowling church. So you've got to do this stuff. And the way to do it is to plan events on your calendar. So preaching and worship and discipleship, those things matter too. But the most important thing in the life of a good growing church is the church calendar. And as long as you put enough stuff on the church calendar, People will come and be free from boredom. And frankly, exhausted. So there is this influence of church culture that tells us Sabbath is bad. And we have to program chaos. So Exodus 31 is a sort of owner's manual. Whatever you do, whether you work or whether you rest, do it to the glory of God. And there is a way to do both to the glory of God. There is a way to completely waste this week. Waste all the work and consider it a pat on your own back. Look how good I did. That's a waste. Not to the glory of God. There is a way to rest that is a waste. Not to the glory of God. So I want to give you some pointers Work to his glory and rest to his glory. Work with thankfulness that he has provided you with skill, intelligence, craftsmanship, and artistry and design. One of the small checks to making sure that you're working with thankfulness is to thank the Lord for the food you eat. It's not bad to thank the Lord for the food you eat. It can become trivial. It can become pointless. But when you sit down and say, Lord, I I think about this as a dad. Maybe, Maybe, guys, you think about this too. Lord, my family would starve 
if you didn't give me the ability to do things that provide. Thank you for the food. Because I know it's come from your hand through the skill that you've given me to do labor. That's one small check to make sure that you're using your skills in a way that attributes thanks to God. A big part of the struggle to work with doxology is our inexperience with resting. So as I said a moment ago, I don't preach to you this morning thinking, man, I got to explain to Western capitalists how to start putting more effort into their job. (laughs) I don't think that, that, I I don't have a pastoral burden to try to convince you to work harder. It's probably not exclusive. There's probably somebody in the room who needs counsel, but I'm just saying pastorally, as I think about our congregation, I'm not trying to figure out a way to convince you to just try a little harder. I do though, however, have a deep pastoral burden that I need to tell you how to rest. And I can't take you to my life and say this is how to do it. I'm not good at it. I'm maybe the worst in the room at it. Um, and it's not good. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book years ago called Crazy Busy. Anybody familiar with the book? You should read it. Crazy Busy, Kevin DeYoung. Uh, and in there, he said, I, I say this because I feel it. I just, I just felt it when I said how bad I am at resting. There's a little part of me that went, see, see how much I do? That happened just as I was preaching this sermon about how bad we are at resting. You see how present that temptation is? Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called Crazy Busy, and he said in the book, he said, especially guys struggle with this. The first two questions you ask a man when you meet him are, hello, what's your name? Jay. Second question, what do you do? Because I'm going to define your worth based on what you tell me. And if you can convince me that you labor in something significant tirelessly without end so that if you didn't exist on the planet, everybody else would suffer, I'm going to admire you. So I'm standing here before you, unable to tell you, follow this pattern. And I became aware of that. I thought, Lord, I, I want to tell people, I want to give people something to consider for how they'll Sabbath. That's how I'm going to finish today. If you have a handout, on the back, there are five steps. Uh, forgive me for the orientation of the back. That was a mistake, and I didn't want to waste 140 copies, so I didn't reprint them. But I know they didn't print right. I want to finish this morning by walking you through those five steps. And as I said a moment ago, I sat at my desk this week, and I was aware that I couldn't commend much of my own practice to you. I need to figure this out. And this, this is meant to help me. My family's talked about it already. I had to call a pastor that I know in town, Josh Holland. He pastors at Downtown Mission Church. And sometimes when we get together, I hear him talk about his day off as a Sabbath. And he thinks very carefully about what he does on his Sabbath. Now, a Sabbath doesn't have to be 24 hours. You might consider thinking about your Sabbath from dinner to dinner the next day, or from dinner to lunch the next day. You need to figure out what doxological, to the glory of God, resting looks like for your family. Let me walk you through these. The first thing that I think has to be included in good resting is to receive the rest as a gift from God. Your Sabbath should start with gratitude. Let's say you decide your Sabbath's going to start at dinner. When you sit down to dinner, you should say to your family or to yourself, I am going to intentionally rest for this period of time. 
And I know that the only way I can possibly rest is because you've already provided everything I need, both physically and spiritually, so I can rest because you've given. So the first thing is receive it as a gift. The second thing is truly rest. (laughs) Experience the fellowship you have with God and the fellowship you have with each other. Listen, I'm going to say this really clearly. This might be the most important point I can share with you about rest. Know from the start that you are not good at resting. You're, you're not good at it. You're going to get it wrong. Trial and error. You're going to think some things are very restful. Like here's one just blatant error. Probably nobody in the room thinks this is restful. You're going to think, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to work. I'm not going out to mow. I'm going to stay in here. And I'm just going to scroll through social media. <laughs> and just know right now, F. You got an F in resting. Because there's nothing restful about that. That's going to provoke all sorts of activity in your soul. Okay, so that's not it. Third, reflect. The basis for any Christian rest is Christ. There is real peace and real rest in worship. So you must reflect. I don't think there is a more peaceful moment in my week than when I gather with you and express the promises and the assurance we have of all of the gospel hope. I don't think there's any moment in my week where I am more at peace than when we're singing together the truth of Jesus Christ. That should be a part of your Sabbath. Reflect. Fourth, remember. Remember all of God's goodnesses that make that rest possible. Remember every good thing. The week of work can be filled with problem-solving. Let the day of rest be filled with blessing counting. And then fifthly, restore. God restores our mind, our body, our soul through rest. Look for ways to extend restoration to others. Maybe you invite other people into your Sabbath. I want you to come over for a couple hours this afternoon to enjoy Sabbath with our family. Well, what what are we going to do? Talk about Jesus a lot? Count blessings? Be still? I'm uncomfortable with this. Is this a trap? Are you a telemarketer? You selling something? No, just just come rest. And that will probably be uncomfortable. Comfortable for you to do it. Uncomfortable for other people to come and do it with you. But I think that speaks to how great a need we have. Listen, our God wrote things down for us. And gave them to us as a loving God. Who didn't even keep Jesus from us. What good thing would he keep? So he gave us things like instruction about resting. I want you to delight in resting. According to God's plan. And I want to say softly. Again the warning. If you would reject his rest. Of Christ. You will die But I want to add an application today. I believe, Christian, that if you refuse rest in your week, practically, just functionally, if you refuse to rest in your week, there will be all sorts of deadly consequences. A deadness of joy, a deadness of soul, a deadness of fellowship. You'll 
manage your way through life and spurn a gift that builds in us joy and worship. As disciples, we should work and rest as God has instructed. Work and rest. Both in the power of his might. Just know that you're working and you're resting are only truly possible because of all he has done. Let's pray. Father, I stand as one of our faith family in front of you and confess that resting is unnatural. It seems somehow like a humiliation to say that I can't keep working to master time. So Lord, as a, as a congregation, as brothers and sisters, would you continue this charge from your word to our homes and our lives? Build, Lord, if you would, build in our community of church a conversation about how to do Sabbath. That's not lazy. It's not, it's not sloth. It's not being introverted and just wanting to shut up the compound of our house and ignore everyone. But a way to do Sabbath that equips us both in our confession of faith and then in our stewardship of work. That we would see the benefit of really getting Sabbath right. Not just taking a weekend off, but really getting Sabbath practice right. So that we would really work right. Joyfully, with thankfulness and good stewardship. So Father, thank you for this instruction you gave these, these people in the wilderness. That you, you gave the skilled skill. You gave the intellectual intellect. And then you like a father, call them to rest. Because no amount of effort was going to accomplish what only you could do in Christ, what only you could do at creation. And so our resting confesses that we depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.